Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. On the show today, we're going to highlight something dear to us here at WRT, the importance and power of local journalism. Currently, the Pulitzer Prizes are highlighting how local journalism helps the community with the new On the Road program, a series of panel discussions that enable the public to hear firsthand about the journalistic process from Pulitzer Prize winners and finalists. Tomorrow, the series comes to Madison and will feature a discussion on how local journalism can help protect the health and safety of workers and residents and communities across the U.S. This free event will take place at the Overture Center for the Arts in the Promenade Hall from 7 to 8.30 p.m. A live stream link is also available on the Pulitzer website. The event tomorrow will feature two Pulitzer Prize winners, Corey Johnson of ProPublica and my guest today, Raquel Rutledge, who won the Pulitzer in 2010 for her investigative reporting for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and was a finalist for the 2022 Public Service Prize for her contributions to the Journal Sentinel's investigation of electrical fires in Milwaukee's rental properties, titled Wires and Fires. Raquel Rutledge is a Milwaukee native and joined the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in 2004. Thank you for joining me today, Raquel. I'm so glad to have you with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for Raquel Rutledge or want to share a perspective on local journalism, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. Raquel, uh, I'd like to start today just by uh, building on this event that is happening tomorrow night, part of a series of events that the Pulitzer Prizes are organizing across the country, and have you tell us a little bit more about what you know about this event tomorrow night and the importance of journalists explaining what they do to the public in particular. Sure, sure. Yeah, we're very excited. It's the first time the administrators of the Pulitzer Prize are are taking this um, on the road out into local communities because there is a strong sense that um, that that our our residents don't always know um, how important local journalism is and what we do, and and so we want to just highlight it and 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 have a chance to to have a conversation with uh, community residents and and just sort of explain the process so that we, I think trust is one of those things that has been eroded over time. And I think when you get to see us, when you get to know us, um, you'll understand that we are people like you. We live in the communities that we write about very often. And um, and we want to hear from you. Like we, like the relationship between us and our communities is, is vital. It's, it's very different than national or international reporting where oftentimes reporters parachute in and try to cover a community from the outside. Uh, local journalism, I mean, we are living in, we have kids that go to schools and we have, you know, we're, we're taking advantage of the same services that you are. And so it's really important that we have a solid, strong relationship. And you are, of course, an investigative journalist in particular. Raquel, tell us a little bit more about the importance of local investigative journalism and things you hope to emphasize tomorrow about what investigative journalists do and what they offer the community. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're excited to have Corey Johnson tomorrow. He um, uh, was working for the Tampa Bay Times when they did an investigation into um, a factory that was poisoning its workers and neighbors with lead. I mean, just uh, huge high amounts of lead and they were able to expose that. The workers didn't know what they were, what the ailments were that they were suffering at home, um, nor did the neighborhood. And um, so, yeah, so we're gonna be talking about that journalism. I mean, a lot, I think there's a lot of things that are going on sometimes under our noses that we don't, we don't know, or we don't, because we're not necessarily in the factory or we're not in the C-suite to see the corruption. So we really do count on 
um, community members to to tell us what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. And then for us to um, be able to go in and substantiate that, and that's the difference between um, what we do as investigative journalists and other, I won't say other journalists, but other sources of information that people sometimes rely on that haven't been vetted. What, we, what we'll do is, you know, we will go out and get get the records that exist. We will verify um, multiple ways before we'll ever put a sentence in the newspaper. I mean, it has been vetted it's for our investigations um, many different ways, even for just to say one sentence. I mean, so it is intensive work, um, but it's able to, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's usually airtight by the time we publish it. We have very little, if no, margin of error. We, you know, we just can't be wrong when we're making these big allegations about companies or people. Um, so it, you know, it has to be true. And so it's it's stressful, but it's uh, but, but it's important. And then and then it brings about it oftentimes brings about change. That's another area that if you you know sometimes we have long we have to have a long attention span for investigative work. Um, it often requires going back over the same subject again and again and continuing to write about it, sometimes for a year, sometimes for two years. Uh, and then and then you'll start to see change. But a lot of times, you know, if you just write one story and you you think you've covered it, you've done it and you want to you're sick of it and you want to put your feet up. Uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, the, the, the policymakers, regulators, you know, they won't they won't respond and the changes won't come about. So it requires a long attention span. I would love to to dive into some of your work and how it illustrates what you've just been talking about and how it has led to change as well. But before we do that, I think it would be great for our listeners to learn a little bit more about what drew you to this work and, and how you learned the ropes. Um, that we don't often hear the the journalist's own story, right? Because they're telling yeah. everybody else's story. Um, what got you into investigative journalism, Raquel? Sure. It's, it's, it's funny you should ask that because initially I didn't really, um, I wasn't really that excited to do it. I didn't, I thought we had a, we had a, we hired an, uh, an editor who came to Milwaukee from Orange County and he came back in 2007, I think it was, to uh, build an investigative team. It was something that the editor, Marty Kaiser at the time and managing editor, George Stanley had wanted to do for a long time to build a team that would have would be dedicated to being able to spend time on on uh, longer term investigations. And so um, this person came to um, Milwaukee, his name was Mark Katches, and wanted me to join the team. And at the time, I was doing more stories that I just kind of general assignment, trend stories, things that I just was interested in. And he said, I think you'd be really good at this. And I thought, well, it's going to be this particular beat um, might end up looking like, oh, writing about you know streetlights that are out or potholes in the street or because it was called public investigator at the time. And I thought that that wasn't going to be very exciting. And um, I was wrong. I was very wrong. I, I took his advice. I joined the team. And as I started writing or started looking into things that seemed small, maybe on the surface, but as you start to get into people's stories, um, we were able to find that, hey, there are bigger systemic problems at hand here and nobody was covering it. And because because it would be sometimes a small story about, for example, uh, a, a woman who like had her dining room table on layaway at a business and she was saving up to buy this table, you know, month after month, putting money down. And then the final day when she went to pick up her table, you know, she'd spent maybe $2,000. Um, you know, the business had a, was closed. She went to get it and there was a sign on the door saying, um, you know, call this number and whatever. And she never was able to get her money back or her, or her table. And most newspapers would think, hey, that's a small story. That's one person. It's a couple thousand bucks. I mean, you know, we can't, a regional paper the size of Milwaukee can't spend time doing that. Well, we had that beat carved out for those sort of things. And when we started looking at it, we were able to discover that, hey, this business owner had a pattern of swindling money from many, many people, shutting down, moving down the street, literally like a mile down the road, changing his name. And then the state was not following the tax IDs and the names of the owners. And so it was a bigger story than we initially thought. And so I guess I feel like that's, that's for me, um, what's rewarding about the job is being able to um, expose these wrongs for people that otherwise wouldn't really um, have an outlet or a place to turn for this, the Better Business Bureau doesn't often, you know, follow through or, or doesn't have teeth. And sometimes it's just exposing the systemic problems um, that can really um, lead to sweeping changes that affect a lot more people. So that's kind of what got me got me going. 
Absolutely. And, and you got hooked seeing uh, yeah. those small stories become these much bigger stories and, and affecting change. Well, we'll talk about that in just a second, but I'm going to reintroduce you first. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with Raquel Rutledge today, investigative reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and co-author of the paper's 2022 Pulitzer Prize nominated series, Wires and Fires. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM, and we'd be happy for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question or comment about local journalism, please give us a call at 608 Two five six two zero zero one extension nine. So, um, Raquel, let's uh, really dig into some of those stories that you've worked on over the years. Now, you gave us this great personal history and sense of why this work is so important. Um, and the first story I'm going to ask you about, or series, really, that you won the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for exposed fraud uh, in the Wisconsin Shares child care system. Um, and I'd love for you to talk about this series a little bit and how you found the story at the heart of it, first of all, and then we'll talk about its impacts. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that was a story that um, came in through a tip, and I was doing that public investigator beat that we just talked about, and the tip came in from a person who said um, there was a little boy that died in a daycare van. He was left uh, in the hot summer in a van in July and they did, he was forgotten about and he ended up dying. And the caller said, hey, that little boy never was even supposed to be at that daycare center. There's a whole nother thing, a whole nother racket sort of going on here. And, you know, again, most newspapers, they would be very focused on the actual death of the child, right? So you'd be, you'd be writing about, the, you'd be covering the police angle of that. Like, what, you know, what happened? You know, who are the daycare owners? And you would focus on that and you wouldn't have time to dig into something totally um, sort of on the left field, at a left field that says, hey, that he shouldn't have been there. But but because we had that beat, I was able to sit down with that tipster and really delve into, okay, what do you, I, I don't know what you mean, what are you talking about? And I learned, okay, there's this whole subsidy program, um, you know, sponsored by the state, which was really meant to help low-income workers get and keep jobs by by making childcare affordable or covering it. And it was, it was just being, it was being, um, swindled and scammed every which way. And um, so after many, many, many meetings with this tipster, um, the tipster was a whistleblower because your first question that you ask people, of course, when they call you and tell you things is, well, you know, how do you know that? You know, are you, do someone tell you that? Or do you have documents or are you involved? You know, how do you know? And, And so whenever you get a whistleblower that is on the inside, um, you know, it's really, really helpful. Those are some of our best tips. Um, so um, that investigation, the, the, you know, the first story that we ran um, was, was, was basically about how the system, how there were um, people that were setting up phantom daycare centers and billing the state for taking care of children that they weren't actually taking care of, that they weren't actually taking care of. So we did stakeouts. We went outside the um uh, outside some of the daycare centers, and then we were able to get their billing records. Those are pub- those were public records. They would bill the state, and they would say, "Hey, we took care of 100 kids, you know, last week or whatever." And but but I had been sitting out there outside, watching the front, the back. There were there were no children coming and going, so we were able to see with our own eyes that that something was amiss there. And so it turned out to be it was one of those investigations that you kind of write a smaller story first. Like it wasn't something that we investigated, investigated, and then rolled out a three days, three part series. It was one of those stories we wrote a little bit that we could see. And then more people kept coming, more tips kept coming. And as I kept investigating, it turned out to be bigger and bigger. And literally that the first year of that, I wrote 50 stories of which probably like eight of them were more were investigations. And then the others were follow-ups about what the government was going to do in response. It turned out that hundreds there were there were there were a number there were dozens of people that were criminally indicted for doing this in the end and hundreds of daycare centers were closed down because they were suspected of defrauding the program um so it led to five laws being changed it, it, I mean, it led to a, a, a lot of change state laws in particular correct correct yeah. yes um, it's an incredible story, and, and there are two things I'd really like to, to focus in on there and follow up with before 
we talk about some of your other work. One of them is how this was all opened up um, by a whistleblower. Uh, have you had other experiences like that? Or um, are there perspectives you'd like to share about the power of whistleblowers? Um, yeah, or- yeah, absolutely. Our best stories have come from whistleblowers. And I think people are very nervous and, you know, and we have to be very careful to protect their identities. And we are. I've worked with whistleblowers now a, a number of times. And so, um, you know, we can what the important thing is in the conversations with the whistleblower is kind of upfront to say, here's what we can do to protect your identity, because we they have very real concerns about their livelihoods, about the legality of what they're doing. There's a number of reasons they're very can be very concerned. So, you know, we have a conversation on like, am I willing to go to prison or to, j- to jail, actually, to be held in contempt of court to not because I won't disclose your name. Like, how far am I willing to go? And I remember having the conversation with that whistleblower at the time because I had smaller children at the time. And I said, you know what? I'm willing to go to jail for a short time. I mean, like, I, I probably can't spend months and months and months in jail over this. You know, I just because I have a family and I have small kids. But, I, you know, here's what I can do. And here's what our lawyers can do for you and what they can't do for you. So kind of laying the ground rules up front, I think, give, you know, gives peace of mind a little bit to the whistleblower to know, okay, here's, here's, here's what the landscape looks like if I come forward with this. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's definitely, those are the best, you know, kind of stories. And we ended up shortly after, a couple of years after that story ran, it, it, Wisconsin passed some beefed up protections for whistleblowers in the state because of that, because it is so vital because I mean, it was millions and millions of dollars. I think in the initial stories we found, it was like $40 million was being scammed out of that system um, that was meant to help low income people be able to get jobs. I mean, it had really good intentions, but the safeguards, the oversight of the money just wasn't wasn't there. And so um, it's really important to be able to have whistleblowers be able to come forward because we wouldn't know that otherwise. There's no way that I would have known that story. And so um, like a lot of stories that I write about, um, often I'm starting from scratch. I mean, honestly, I had not heard of the Wisconsin Shares Program at that time. I didn't I didn't have kids in daycare at that time. Um, I just hadn't been aware of it. So a lot of our job is really spending time learning about how things are supposed to work. I mean, so some of it's very tedious. I mean, I spend hours and hours and hours and weeks and weeks literally reading policies, reading the fine print. How is this program supposed to work? And then we can see where it's not working. So learning, I mean, a lot of times I'm learning from scratch about things that I'm not, that I didn't know about. And that's one of the things I love about the job is that I'm just constantly learning new things. You're giving us such a wonderful, detailed window into the work of a local investigative journalist, Raquel, and um, really helping people understand, I think, not only what's at stake for, in this case, a whistleblower, but what's at stake for the journalist as well, that this sometimes can be um, challenging work logistically, challenging work ethically, challenging work emotionally. Um, You mentioned stakeouts. That was the other thing I was going to follow up with you on as part of your journalistic process. I'm sure it doesn't come up with every story, but in this particular Pulitzer Prize winning series, it did. Um, What did that feel like for you? What kind of preparation did you need to do going into it? And um, as a method for gathering information, just shed a little light on that for us. Yeah, sure. It's definitely sort of harrowing because you're sitting outside and you're trying to not be noticed and you're trying to be, um, you know, just observant and you want to have a method to doing it so that when somebody comes back to say, well, you know, we went in the back door, we went in a side door or, or we were on vacation that week. You, you want to have things thought out about what you're actually seeing ahead of time. So you, so you kind of make a plan of the hours that they're supposed to be caring for these kids, because a lot of people said, well, oh no, these were second shift kids. You know, we were watching, so we so we went back on second shift and we're like, okay, we'll spend all night, we'll so stay out overnight. And I went with a photographer at the time, so there were two of us sitting out there. Um, and a couple of times it was definitely uh, harrowing. There were, there were um, you know, people that came out of the daycare center and, you know, sort of threatened and said, you know, get out of here. What are you doing? And, you know, and police came over sometimes because the neighbors would call and say, you know, I noticed you've been sitting out there a long time. What are you doing? You know, so it's, um, it is a bit nerve wracking, but again, it's one of those things, you know, we can see with our own eyes, we can use our, that's a tool that we can use. And you're right. It doesn't come up in every story, but 
a lot of times we are filling in and doing things um, that the government otherwise should be doing. And, and that's what some of the daycare providers knew that the government workers weren't going to work after 5 p.m. They don't they work nine to five. So we're going to work. We're going to say that we've got kids from six to you know 2 a.m. knowing that the government uh, regulators aren't going to come out at that time. So and that's the same as sometimes we'll go in and test products or we'll do other work that you hope or you think the government's doing to protect you. And then you find out later that it isn't. So we have filled that gap in a number of times for stories um, to expose where the government's coming up short. And is that a method that you learned about in, in journalism school? Is that something that's taught or did you have to sort of learn it on the job? Gosh, that's a funny question. Yeah, no, did not. There's so much in journalism school that we don't learn. We didn't then. We try to be better now because I, I speak to classes and I sure. I try to give, you know, hands on tips about, you know, things you can do that otherwise wouldn't be taught if if the if your journalism instructor is not like in the field, more on the more academic side, you don't get some of this stuff. And so, no, I definitely was not taught that in in school. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there's a there's a lot of things that uh, students need that we can we can share as practical journalists. So I try to do that whenever possible. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and today I'm talking with Raquel Rutledge, investigative reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and co-author of the paper's 2022 Pulitzer Prize-nominated series, Wires and Fires. If you'd like to join us, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, with your questions about local investigative journalism or observations about the state of the field. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. Raquel, I'd love to transition now to this more recent series that garnered the attention of the Pulitzer Prizes. Um, the Wires and Fires series that you co-authored in 2021 that was a finalist for the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Tell us about the issues at the heart of this series, and then we'll dive more into the how you went about reporting it. Sure. The issues are that there are um, renters in throughout Milwaukee and, and likely other parts of the state um, that are renting properties that have not been maintained well and that tend to catch fire and and often you know can lead to death. And so it was something that I had noticed going on actually for years. There was a fire back in 2013 that caught my attention that I later wrote about, but um, where people were being killed in these fires and everybody was sort of acting like, well, it's just an accident. And then they would move on. And I thought, well, it's just one of those things I wondered about. That's one of the things in this job too. I think um, that curiosity just really propels you if you're in this business and you have a sense of curiosity. I mean, I think that's what makes, makes a good journalist a lot of times is um, I just wondered how thought, is it really an accident or could it be prevented? Is it predictable? And so we just started looking at something I wanted to do for a while. And um, after uh, a couple of people were killed in 2019 in a fire in Milwaukee, and it was one of those things just again, everybody said, oh, it was an accident and moved on. I thought, let's look at this. Let's see what is going on here. And what we found out when we started digging is that experts say, hey, these fires are very preventable. They're often very predictable. And so we started crunching the data and the data was um, really messy to begin with and not um, the national, there's a fire reporting database, it's voluntary. Um, so it was woefully inadequate. So we had to build our own databases. And, um, but when we started looking, what we found was that uh, electrical fires disproportionately impact black renters in Milwaukee. I mean, at five times the rate, there's one zip code specifically that's hit at five times the rate of the rest of the city. and and, and again, nobody was doing anything about it. Everyone was just acting like, well, that's just, that's the way it is. And so uh, we were able to expose that, bring that to light. And now we have um, regulators talking about uh, making some changes, both on the local level in Milwaukee and at the state level as well. Tell us a little bit more about why electrical electrical fires are hitting Milwaukee's black renters hardest. What is the convergence of circumstances that's causing that to be true? Sure. I think a lot of those homes in that area have been bought by uh, uh, landlords who um, have not invested the money in maintaining the property. Sometimes they buy them for $5,000, $10,000. 
and they don't have insurance on them sometimes. It's hard to know exactly how many have insurance and how many don't, but in a spot check that we did and, and from interviews that we did, um, it sounds like a lot of folks don't have insurance. It's very expensive to get insurance in, in that neighborhood with those homes because they are in such disrepair. And so um, so the wires behind the wall, are, I mean, a lot of times they're, they're, they're old. These are really old homes. Um, they have sometimes the homes have one outlet in the room. And so a lot of times renters get blamed for using extension cords that landlords love to say, well, you use too many extension cords. You overheated the outlet. Well, guess what? There's only one outlet that works in that room. And in today's society with our laptops and our, you know, Xboxes and our microwaves and all the things that require electricity, one outlet in a room is not sufficient. And so that's, that's a problem. A lot of times renters would say, you know, they had lights that were sparking and shooting sparks out of the outlets. I mean, just just mayhem. And so um, we actually hired an electrical, um, a master electrician to go in and do an inspection in Milwaukee in that zip code to see how widespread this really was because we, you know, we suspected it was a problem. We had stories that anecdotally that were, were problems. The data showed that these fires were happening there, but now we wanted to go look and just see like how many people are really at risk here? What, what kind of risks are we looking at? And so we went out and we did a um, a statistically, we wanted to be statistically valid. So we did a random sample of randomly generated 50 rental properties in the 53206 zip code in Milwaukee. It's one of the most distressed neighborhoods. And um, so we just started knocking on those doors of those, those addresses that were randomly generated and just asking people, hey, you know, we had an electrician with us. Do you, you know, would you be willing to let us take a look at your electrical system just to see what kind of risks you might be facing? And we had no idea if people were going to let us in or, you know, you know, be skeptical or whatever. And people were overwhelmingly open to us coming in and actually grateful and thankful and happy to see us in the neighborhood. I think it's, you know, often that's a neighborhood that gets overlooked. And um, so people let us in and we, we, we ended up inspecting, doing inspections in 15 different rental properties. And of those 14 of the 15 had electrical code violations in there. So if you extrapolate that out, as the statisticians do, it was expected to be 80% of the population in that, of the rental population in that, in that neighborhood would, would have some, some, some sometimes serious electrical code violations. I mean, we found panels that were open, exposed, that if you had a child touch that, the electrician said, I would shoot you across the room. I mean, there were some serious ungrounded wires. I mean, things that were just a mess. And landlords have just been allowed to get away with it. And is this a neighborhood or uh, zip code where uh, there's a high percentage of people who are renters as opposed to homeowners? Yes. I mean, we were able to do the numbers also and, and figure out how um, these fires disproportionately affect rental properties. I don't have I don't remember exactly the numbers in front of me, but it, it was definitely disproportionate to the rent. The, the fires were happening in rental properties more than others. And that's why, because, again, People want to say, well, all old homes have old wiring. Well, no, because we checked the old homes in the more affluent zip codes. Those homes are not having fires like this because people are maintaining them. They're, they're owner-occupied very often. And the owners, because they live there, care about a fire starting. And so they upgrade their wire wiring. And so so you can't blame it on old homes. Um, you know, it's so so there are things that can be done to fix these, you know, to fix the situation. That's, that's the good news about this. It's like when you shine a light on it, it's like, well, there actually are solutions out there. So we've started to look at those as well. Great. Yeah. Speaking of solutions, uh, part of the problem, it seems your, your story uh, exposed was that there's a political dimension to this story. Uh, you write, Milwaukee once had several safeguards in place that helped detect dangerous wiring, but starting in 2011, a group of state lawmakers, some moonlighting as landlords, uh, and I'm, I'm including here, this is my inclusion of the quote, uh, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, dismantled the safeguards in a series of sweeping laws promoting the interests of landlords, end quote. How did this happen, and is anything being done about it now? Um, yeah, well, it is It is curious how it happened. Um, my colleagues, um, uh, Mary Spicuza and Carrie Spivak, had written about that a number of years ago as that was happening. So we, they were you know, writing stories, this is happening, and it just, you know, it was the, just the legislature 
uh, went along with it. And I think a lot of times some of the some of those representatives that vote on those things, they're not they don't have constituents in the city of Milwaukee necessarily that are subjected to these living conditions. And so it's not affecting their constituents. And so they just go forward with it. But um yeah, I mean, that's a, that it's a problem. There are uh, this Robin Voss did say not too long ago that he was open to the idea of uh, requiring landlords to have insurance on their rental properties. And why that's important is because insurance companies are the ones a lot of times that do these investigations and get to the bottom of the origin of the fire. And because I was surprised again, I was surprised that these fires were not being thoroughly investigated once they were suspected to be electrical. So police, the fire marshals, the state arson investigators, if they don't suspect a homicide or a crime, they they will allow it to be called, just be, okay, we suspect it's electrical. We can call it undetermined. And, and 75% of the fires are, 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 are treated that way. So what that does is that doesn't hold anybody accountable. Like, for example, in the fire that I mentioned earlier in 2019 that killed uh, Patricia Colston and Clarence Morrell, the landlord at the time, Will Sherrard, well-known in Milwaukee for not maintaining his properties well, he was later able to say, well, there was no electrical fire there, despite the police and fire reports that said they suspected it. It's like they didn't hire uh, an electrical engineer to do the mapping and the tracing to confirm, and he didn't have insurance on his property. Admittedly, he said he did not have insurance on that property. I think he bought that property, if I'm again, from memory, I think it was around for $12,000. And so he didn't have it insured. Um, and so if you have a mandate for insurance, that would that the insurance companies would have a vested interest in getting to the cause of the fire and therefore that you would you'd be able to hold landlords more accountable. So Voss did say he was open to that idea. It's kind of stalled out. It's been kind of quiet lately. He hasn't he hasn't um, they haven't uh, there was a proposal earlier. It was last year that, that just kind of stalled um, Senator uh, Latoya Johnson also mentioned she would be interested in it. So um, a little bipartisan talking of it, but not not moving along. And the Milwaukee Common Council has just been talking, talking, talking and not doing anything about it yet. So we're going to continue to write about it. So in terms of this story, you're still hoping that that impact is forthcoming. You're waiting to see some of those impacts. Yes. We just published the story a couple of days ago on um, the family of Clarence Morrell, who died in that 2019 fire. They ended up suing. Will Sherrard and his realty companies. And they ended up winning a default judgment, a wrongful death suit against him. It was the first of its kind that I've seen um, because what it was able to do is not just hold his realty companies, but him personally responsible for their deaths. So that was pretty amazing. And they're asking for $2 million in damages. Um, the judge is supposed to award, uh, uh, make a determination on that award uh, next week, uh, or maybe actually later this week. It's coming soon. And so, I mean, I think that sends a strong message to landlords that actually you're going to be held accountable for these things um, financially, um, or that you can be. Um, so that's the first of its kind. So that may have an impact um, as well while these lawmakers and regulators are, are talking about things and, and being slow to act. That could have some ramifications. That's Milwaukee Journal Sentinel journalist Raquel Rutledge and Pulitzer Prize winner. And we're talking today about her investigative journalism with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Uh, she'll be joining an event sponsored by the Pulitzer Prizes on the road program tomorrow in Madison at the Overture Center for the Arts, focused on how local journalism can help protect the health and safety of workers and residents and communities across the U.S. If you'd like to join our conversation, give us a call here on A Public Affair, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Raquel, you mentioned a minute ago how cases that involve a homicide or death um, sometimes are investigated a little more. And you wrote about one of these also in a related piece called The Landlord and the Tenant, which features the heartbreaking story of Angelica Belen. Tell us about Angelica and what happened to her and what drew you to this story. Sure. Yeah, that story happened. So a fire happened at her place in 2013. And that's something I've been thinking about for all these years that I've wanted to write about it. And that's kind of 
what sparked that whole wires and fires investigation. But when we started looking at it, the fire that happened at her place didn't quite fit into what our findings were. So I, I came back to it last year. And um, it's just a story that I thought when it happened, um, everybody was, what happened? I'll just, I'll, I'll tell you what happened with her, I guess. And then I'll, I'll tell you the background a little bit. But so what happened is Angelica Belen, 24 year old mother of four children. She, had uh, she had been in the news back in the 1990s because her little sister had been beaten and starved um, and died in a crib when Angelica was three. So when Angelica was three, there were a bunch of news stories in the Journal Sentinel about her family and, and, and how her parents, her mother had been neglectful and the boyfriend had abused these children. The mom had six kids at the time. And Angelica was put in foster care. So Angelica and her little and her little sister, Rosalie, um, were in foster care through much of their lives and bounced around and suffered horrendous abuse in the foster care system. And so Angelica was, was struggling as a young woman um, in abusive relationships with men and then had ended up having four children, three of whom had special needs. Two were twins with cerebral palsy, autism. Another one, the younger one had breathing um, issues, severe breathing issues. Um, so she was really struggling and then she was in these relationships with abusive men and um, so one day in April um, of 2013, she just got a new job as a hostess at a Chinese restaurant and she did not have anybody to take care of her children. And she called her sister to see if her sister would. Her sister couldn't do it. A couple of days earlier, it was only her, it was her, it was her third day at work. And the days earlier, she asked some neighbors to take care of her kids, the neighbors that really she didn't even know very well, but they took care of her kids one day. But this particular day, she was scheduled to work from four until seven o'clock at night and she didn't, didn't have anybody. And so she took her kids upstairs in the bedroom and put them in their bedroom. Three of the kids, the youngest child uh, who was a toddler at the time was with his dad. And so he, he wasn't around, but the other three kids, um, the, the uh, twins who were four years old and their older sister, Naya, who was five, um, she just told him, you know, hey, stay in here, play in here. I will be back. You know, we're going to have spaghetti for dinner. I'll bring you some cookies. Just, you know, play and, and I'll be back in a little while. And she put them in the room and locked the door and left and went to work. And while she was at work, an electrical fire broke out in the kitchen and and the kids, the kids died. And so uh, when she came home, I mean, she, she got off of work and, you know, she came home to the scene of the firefighters um, at the house and everything. And um, so everybody, everyone really, you know, pointed their fingers and villainized her at, you know, and really just the focus was all on what she did and how horrible she was, what a horrible person she was, et cetera. And nobody really at that time paid much attention at all into what was going on at that house and the electrical system in that house. There had been, um, open code violations, electrical code violations at that house. And uh, there have been problems with it. In fact, when they, when the inspectors came through, they, they said they had never seen in their entire lives such horrendous wiring. And the, so through from the investigation, some of the pictures, they had like spliced wires that were plugged directly into outlets. They had, I mean, just a total mess of things. And Angelica had complained about the electrical system because she, she had put light bulbs in some some fixtures in the kitchen that kept blowing out, blowing out. Um, and the previous tenant, I interviewed the tenant who lived at that house before, and she her, you know, she said, I thought there were ghosts living in that house because the elect, you know, the lights would flicker on and off all the time. And I complained and no one ever, you know, came to fix the system. So it was a problem that um, was known and right there in sort of plain sight that if you went down in that basement or if you paid attention to the kitchen wiring, you would know something is wrong and that that could have been prevented. So I reached out to Angelica last year. I guess it was, yeah, it was last year, beginning of last year. She's in prison, by the way. She got sentenced to 18 years in prison and she's about halfway through her sentence now. She's been in a little more than half halfway now. So I reached out to her last year and I just thought, you know, hey, I would like to know more um, about what happened in, in, in your life and in your, you know, and with that house and everything. And, and she was willing to, we emailed and, um, were able to talk via phone, 15 minute phone conversations. 
She was limited to 15 minute phone conversations. And then I wanted to go see her and talk to her in person. Um, and that was a real challenge that she was at Techita and they would not approve my visitation for a long, long time. And then she got transferred out of there and I was able to go see her um, and meet with her uh, a number of times. So um, that's, we were able to get a fuller picture about what happened and how the systems failed along the way. So this story wasn't about, you know, she takes full accountability, you know, for what she did. And she's not saying she wasn't, you know, in the wrong for leaving her children like that. It just, we wanted to um, show the deeper issues um, because the owner, Todd Brunner, the house owner, he had many properties with many problems and was, was um, able to get away with all kinds of things with code violations and with not keeping his properties up and with um, defrauding the banks. He was accused of bankruptcy fraud. And so we wanted to juxtapose um, those stories. I reached out to Ken Armstrong, who works for ProPublica, um, just knowing that this was not going to be a conventional type investigation that I, that I've, that I, that I've normally done. I wanted to do something different and, and I wanted to um, kind of, you know, tap into his expertise as well on how we might tell something that could resonate with readers in a different way and tell the story differently. And so we told it in a narrative in short chapters and um, we wanted to tell it in the present tense. Actually, we were reading a book. If you want to know the background, we were reading a book, um, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. And we're really, that was an inspiration to us on how that story was told because it was in chapters and it was this French young French girl and a German boy and how their lives intersect at this one particular place. And so this was sort of patterned after that. And um, unfortunately we had our editors sign on to telling a long 14,000 word story, which is kind of unheard of these days in, 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 in for newspapers anyway. Thank you, um, just a riveting story. Um, and I would like to follow up a little bit more with you about uh, what it involved to report this, since our focus is on the work of local journalism today. And you just talked a little bit about your decision to structure the story in this really interesting uh, alternating narrative with the landlord, the focus of one section, and the tenant, the focus of the other, and, and weave them together and it does such a great job of narrating the long-term impacts that allows you to jump around in time and place and and give that full context that um, too often um, we don't get um, so we can really see the way an individual life reached this point in, in Angelica case, Angelica's case right um, this involved all kinds of tremendous reporting and and acts of empathy and uh, reaching across boundaries of class, race, race, ethnicity. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process? And, and I'm particularly interested in having you talk about your experiences reporting across boundaries of difference, class, race, ethnicity, both in this story, but perhaps over the years as well. And what you've learned about how to do that ethically and um, effectively. Mm, thank you. That's a good question. I mean, I, th I think the main thing is to lay out early. So build these um, relationships kind of early um, about insensitively, like, you know, you're just bringing people in and it's an invitation to people. It's not coming, not approaching people that you want to write about with, you know, hey, I want to get up in your business and expose all the hard, the, the worst things you've ever done in your life, right? That resulted, resulted in your children dying. That the approach was, hey, I think there is, I, I, you know, it was, at first it was a letter that I wrote to her initially. And it was just, you know, I, I've often thought the focus was so heavily on, on what you did. And I just, you know, I, and I noticed that nobody paid attention to really the house. And I feel like it's an important story that needs to be told. And, um, and just being, you know, being patient and being sensitive to other people's um, worries and fears and, and concerns and being very transparent about what, you know, what you're willing, like, for example, like Angelica initially wanted to be able to see the story or wonder what we've, and I, you know, I said, well, you know, we can't, we can't. I, we don't do that just by policy, but I'm happy to tell you everything I want to use, you know, fr from you. And I'm happy to go over why I think it's important or if there's things you don't want to have 
in there. Let's talk about why, why. And she was just very open. She became, I just, it took a little bit of just talking with her and, and um, she, you know, she's strong in her faith. And I think that was uh, something that I thought was really important in her life. And a lot of times as journalists, we don't write about faith because we don't know what to do with it. And it can be so divisive. And um, her faith life was really compelling. And it was actually the reason I knew about it is because I was reading the sentencing documents and in the sentence, and when she was sentenced, um, there was a pastor who wrote a letter on her behalf. And, um, and I reached out to him initially because I was reaching out to all the people that were, that wrote letters on her behalf. So I could know what their perspective would be. And, um, and, and so um, he was talking about her, her faith and how her faith kind of got, was able to get her through all this tragedy. And so um, she was concerned about how that might be portrayed in the story. Like, you know, how is that going to come off? And so being sensitive to that, um, I think it's just being able to listen and care and being human and, um, and, and not, you know, we have such reputations a lot of times, especially with investigative journalism of being like confrontational and gotcha. And, and this is just, that is not what we do. It really isn't what we do and not what we're about. We're there to, even with Todd Brunner, I mean, even though, you know, you, you can look at that and say, that's a really scathing portrayal of, of him and things that he's done. I mean, the approach the with him landlord is like, in the story, right? The, the landlord. Yeah. Yep. The landlord in the story, because no, I mean, I knocked on his door a number of times. I want to sit down with him, give him every opportunity to talk and explain, you know, his side of how he was seeing things and what was going on in his life that led him to, got him to where he is. And his son is in the business and how his son got into the business. And so just telling a full, a more full picture, because I mean, I think that we were very deliberate with this story too. And not initially that was where Ken Armstrong was really helpful too, is um, I was thinking the scene of when Angelica locked her children in the bedroom is such a compelling scene. And I thought, well, we could start the story with that scene because it brings you right in. And in talking with Ken, you know, he was like, you know, I think it's more powerful if you kind of know her first, get to know what she's been through. Instead of saying what she did is the worst thing in her life and then trying to like, you're not trying to excuse it because we're not trying to excuse it. She's not trying to excuse it. Nobody is, but it might come off that way. How about we get to know her in her life and see her, bouncing from foster care to foster care and what happened in those foster care homes to her and see her struggle. And then you see what she does. And again, you're not excusing it. It's just like, you can understand it better. And that's all I really wanted from this story from the get go was for people to take a deep breath, pause a little bit and maybe see something, understand it a little more fully and differently than you initially thought. And I think from the reaction that we've gotten, which I mean, I've gotten the most profound emails from people that like they understood it in layers that I, I thought I can, I was just, it was really rewarding to see how it resonated because we didn't want to tell people what to think. We wanted you to come to your own conclusions. Here's what happened. You can come a lot of times in investigations, we lay out our findings, we have bullet points. And this was like, no, I want you to follow along and you can come, you can think whatever you want, however you come to that conclusion. So it was very different. Yeah, absolutely. It was fascinating listening to you describe the process that created that feeling. But it absolutely, having read the story, allowed me to inhabit Angelica's lives and and Todd's as well, as you said. Um, and that's that's the point, right? And that's part of the power of this kind of journalism is it allows us to step into somebody else's shoes and not rush to judgment, suspend judgment, and feel what it's like to be them and try to make the decisions that they're making in their lives in the systems that they're working in, which then, of course, you fold in on top of that really powerful um, testimonial kind of reporting. So um, it's really complex, really fascinating work. Um, we just have about five minutes left. So I, I want to ask a couple of things that move back towards the bigger picture. Um, first of all, personally, and then we'll go more broadly in terms of the field of journalism. What keeps you going uh, through these close encounters with personal tragedies over the years, Raquel? And um, also, how do you see your, your work continuing over the coming years? Yeah, I guess um, what has propelled me, as I mentioned in the past, usually for an investigation, is curiosity. And, you know, and just wanting to understand things better. And when I see, it's one of those things too, just, just when I see injustice, there's something this, I just have this outrage 
that, you know, there is like an outlet to do something about when you see things happening to people and patterns and how our society just turns away and allows it to happen. And sometimes it isn't known necessarily. And so I feel like when you spot things and can uncover it and get people to care about it, I think that's this, these stories. I mean, they are, they are, I mean, I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I cried over, you know, just read, listening to the audio of all the police interrogations of Angelica Blend. There's hours and hours of them interviewing her in the immediate aftermath of the fire. And I mean, I just was, it just brings you to sob. I mean, I was just, you know, so it's, of course. it takes a toll. It's really important. Um, but I, I mean, I just think, you know, it's, it needs to be done. So that's, I mean, I'm going to keep on doing it, you know? So, um, I, yeah, it's, and they're different. It's not like I'm telling the same stories all the time. There's always, there's always, tra- it's almost always tragic. It just turns out, but, um, you know, I, I, I write about all kinds of different things. So it's not one area all the time. After a while, I did get tired of writing about the daycares. I mean, that was literally two and a half years, I think. And I thought, oh, if I have to write another daycare story, I don't know how I'm going to do it, you know, because after a while. But like I said, I'm usually sometimes I'm writing stories about taxes and, and you know, or traveling to Mexico and some of the dangers that people were facing in Mexico or people working in a factory, you know, there's just all kinds of stories. So there's, I think those, um, those are endless. So you said there, it has to be done. And of course, I know this is a big question to end with, but you're doing it in a context for journalism that, uh, it's challenging. Their newspapers are shrinking, cutting local reporters. Um, how do we, how do we keep doing this work in that context? And what's your assessment of uh, what journalism can do to respond to the threats to local journalism. Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is for people to understand that we're not perfect and that we do make mistakes. We do have bias. And, you know, and at the same time, please don't throw us out. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, just don't. We, we, we are vital for democracy. Uh, please understand that and, and trust us and tell us your stories and help us become better, collaborate, um, and subscribe and invest and uh you know and yeah you're right i mean there really are a handful of regional maybe a slightly more than a handful but not many more than a handful of regional papers that really do investigations and do them well there aren't that many there are some and it takes good leadership it takes leadership that knows the importance of it and values it and then you know is willing to continue to invest in it because it can be expensive but what we hear from readers is that that's why they subscribe often. They do, they want that kind of uh, information and that they can't get anywhere else. So it's, it, it does pay off in the big picture. Thank you so much, Raquel, for joining me today. I've been talking with Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Raquel Rutledge of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, Raquel. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer Jade, and news director, Sholly, and remind folks that you can go see Raquel uh, Rutledge and Corey Johnson tomorrow at the Overture Center for the Arts at 7 p.m. And I want to also thank you for listening today here on A Public Affair at WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. We come and never be recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream Media distorted We come and listen and support it We come and never be recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream Media distorted We come and listen and support it